Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. The Director's Cut is now available on Spotify, so please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Peter Farelli's new comedic drama, Green Book. The film tells the true story of Tony Lip, an Italian-American bouncer from the Bronx who was hired to drive Dr. Don Shirley, a world-class African-American pianist, on a concert tour from Manhattan to the Deep South in 1962. During the trip, they must rely on the Green Book to guide them to the few establishments that were safe for African-Americans. As they are confronted with racism and danger, as well as unexpected humanity and humor, the two men develop a bond that surprises them both. In addition to Green Book, Mr. Forelli's credits with his brother Bobby include the feature films Dumb and Dumber 2, Hall Pass, The Heartbreak Kid, Shallow Howl, There's Something About Mary, Kingpin, and Dumb and Dumber, as well as solo projects such as the movie for television Cuckoo, the pilot for the series Unhitched, and episodes of the series Loudermilk. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Forelli spoke with director Dan Gilroy about filming Green Book. During their conversation, Mr. Forelli discusses his fascination with road movies, working with Oscar winner Mahershala Ali and Oscar nominee Viggo Mortensen, and fighting preconceived notions made about him based on his previous films. Thank you so much. Thanks. Very, very kind. Thanks for coming and thanks for staying. Yes, absolutely. You know, standing ovations like that are rare. And I feel, having seen the movie, and I think maybe you guys feel the same way, I think you've tapped into something really powerful. I think, I think this is like the right movie at the right time. I really do. And, and, like, we needed this movie, right? We totally, we totally needed this movie. And well, I hope so. I, you know, it, it uh, um, I, when I heard it, I fell in love with it right away and, and wanted to do it. And it just, you know, we didn't manipulate it. This is a, sto- this is a true story. We moved the, you know, the, the, the incidents around. This actually took place over a year. Uh, and the first leg of it ended at Christmas Eve, just as we told. But then they went on, so we had so much—excuse <clears throat> me—so much to draw from. And in fact, we had those letters. We had 67 letters. And um, so, and but uh, I've read a couple of things where they say, you know, it gets a little corny at the end with the Christmas thing. But that was the end of the of this first leg, and uh, we just tried to be true to it. So obviously, a big dynamic in the film, if not the defining one, it's a road movie. And I think we know your work well enough to know that you're not shy about doing road movies. It's, it's an incredible device. Um, apart from the film, do you have a, a thing, that, an affinity for road films? I mean, it's a very powerful device. You can do so much with it. You know, I, I swear to God, I don't think, hmm, what, can I, what road movie can I do next? But it's been pointed out to like me. what highway you're going to go down next? No, it's like it's been pointed out, you know, Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin, there's something about Mary. They're all road movies. And I, I'm not thinking about it. Um, they, I do love being on the road, though. I've driven cross-country 22 times, 16 alone. I highly recommend it. If you're ever at a 
crossroad in your life, you don't know what to do next, get in a car for four or five days by yourself and don't be on the phone the whole time and don't constantly be listening to music. I do here and there. But just get in your own head for four or five days, shocking the clarity you get. And that's what I do whenever I'm a little confused about either a project or anything in my life. Uh, so I do love that. And I'm never happier than when I'm on the road. It's just like a, I feel that Jack Kerouac you know, Americana, hap you know, openness, like you stop at a gas station and you strike up conversations with total strangers. And it's just a, it's just a, something I love. So I guess that's where it comes from. So in terms of the road movie dynamic and another thing I want to talk about, which is your brilliant mix of drama and comedy, I think you have like a Capra-esque quality. I really do. I Thank think you. I think Peter's like adopted, taken the mantle of Frank Capra. Who, what what better mantle could you take? Because you know what I love about this movie, and it, why I think it's so right for now? There's hope in it. The movie has hope. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is what drew me to the movie because I heard this movie just in passing from a friend of mine. I heard the story. Uh, Brian Hayes Curry, who is one of the writers with Nick Vallelonga and myself, but I bumped into Brian, who's an actor, and I said, "What are you doing?" Because I'm writing a screenplay. So what is it? He says. True story, this black concert pianist named Don Shirley in 1962 had to go on a trip through the South, and he was afraid, so he hired the toughest bouncer in New York City, an Italian guy, sixth grade education, who was racist himself. And they went on the trip, and somehow at the end of it, they became friends. And I was like, what? He goes, I said, they, they what? He said, they became friends. I said, the racist and the concert pianist? He said, yeah, and I, that hooked me. If they had not become friends, if they had ended up enemies or even worse, I don't think I would have made this movie. The thing that got me was the hopefulness of it because I'm hopeful. I am a hopeful guy. I, I, there's so much negativity in the world, but I do believe that there's goodness too, and I, and, and I like pushing that out there. So movies like this are a process. It took years to get off the ground. So like, I'm assuming it did, to write and everything else. So, so here you are now. You're making it a couple years ago, and suddenly our world changes in many ways. Did you start to feel it was becoming more relevant at any moment while you were doing it? Because it really is a relevant film. I mean, I mean... Even though the movie happens 40 years ago, I feel like we're going through today's America in the sense of how divided we are. We're a very divided country. This is a very divided film. And yet I felt like you were taking us on a tour of something that hadn't changed. I don't mean like the details, just our differences and our despair. So did you feel as, we, as, as you got closer to like where we are now that you felt that the prism we were looking at would be different? I, you know, I didn't make it as any kind of message movie, that's for sure. But um, certainly when we started, when I heard it right away, I thought, and, and, and as well as the homosexuality in there, and when I looked into it further, I was like, wow, this is like, you know, this is gonna resonate today on many, many levels. And uh, so I was aware of that, but you know, we started this three years ago, and uh, which isn't that long. You know, people can drag these things out forever. I know I have. But in in um, at that time, this before the current thing that's going on. You know, in Washington, but it still there were a lot of bad things happening. Or you know, racism was coming to the forefront more just because cops had started wearing cameras, and we were finding out things that you know we didn't want to believe were true. And that is, you know. You know, it was they were there were some bad cops, and they were they were killing black men, and it became very obvious to us. You couldn't deny it anymore. There was always the argument before. Well, that guy he tried to get away, he did this, he did that. Now we could see he did nothing, and he was getting killed. So people were outraged to begin with, and um, so it was it was already happening before you know Washington happened in the last couple of years, and and it certainly inspired me to 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 do this. So I think a very important part of this film is your story in the sense we all know you have a very, very strong pedigree in comedy, obviously. 
And, and here's a film that presents itself with, with very dramatic themes, very serious dramatic themes that are relevant today, as you've just pointed out. And, and here you are, you're, you're going to embark on doing this film that's very, totally very different. And, and what I love about the film, and I'm wondering if it was a, how, how much you had to modulate it consciously, and it's a very difficult thing to do, is, is the comedy in the drama. And I think it's something that a lot of people who focus solely on drama miss, which is that comedy, I think, is an inherent part of drama. And, and when you were making the film, did you have a mixing board any times where you were trying to think in your own head, because Vigo is very funny. The dynamic between them is very funny. I found myself laughing out loud at times. I didn't stay for the screen, but I'm sure there was laughs here. Uh, and and it's, it's a very powerful laughter. So, so were you dialing it in? I mean, your outtakes must have some incredibly funny outtakes. But, but tell me about how comedy, how you modulated or didn't modulate it. Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I um, was, for two years, I told everybody this is my first drama. And it wasn't, that funny on paper on the on the page it was it was a good script we got Vigo and we got Mahershala so we had to have a good script but when those guys started doing their thing they elevated it because it is we tried to I didn't go for jokes I was very careful not to go for jokes the only one that's kind of in there that's kind of jokey <coughs> excuse me and I fought it was folding that pizza you know and that's just something that that, that uh, Tony Lip did. And we were out to dinner one night, and Nick Valalong, the writer and son, told Vigo, he goes, yeah, my dad used to tell him, don't cut that. Don't cut it. And give me the pizza. And then he'd fold it in half, eat the whole pizza. And Vigo goes, I got to do that. And I said, no, no, come on, man. This isn't the Three Stooges. I don't want to do that. And he goes, let me just have one crack at it. Right. And he did, and the whole crew cracked up because they didn't see it coming. And I thought, okay, well, we got to keep that one in. But I was fighting the comedy, but those guys, all the comedy came from character stuff. It was like... My favorite show of all time, probably, there's been some real good ones lately, is the Andy Griffith show. Love that show. And what I nuts. Yeah, and what I Don loved nuts. about it is they never told a joke in that show. There were no jokes. It was all character humor. And they made a point of not to have jokes. Uh, but to, the, you'd always laugh be, out of the character. And that's what these guys brought. Like, that scene where they're talking about the, uh, you know, he goes, hey, I got your first al the album with the orphans. And he goes, uh, orphans? He goes, you know, little kids sitting around a campfire. He goes, Orpheus. Or, or, or Orpheus in, in the Underworld, based on a French opera. And, and in the script, Vigo was supposed to say, oh, but he doesn't. He goes, yeah. Like, <clears throat> doesn't care. it's insane. Like, he doesn't know what an Orpheus is. So to him, an Orpheus is another word for orphan. He doesn't know, yeah, what I say. You know, that look. And then it's, it's Mahershala responding to his, like, oh, my God, the looks. And we're cracking up back there, and I'm realizing, as we're making it, I'm realizing this is very funny, and I hadn't thought of it like that, uh, to be honest. And then it's just, you know, there were a couple of things that were I knew would get laughs. Like, you have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, I'm good, right? You know, I knew that was funny. But there were most of the laughs in here just come from slight, nuanced acting. Those guys just knocking it out of the park in every way. Well, I think, I think, I think the comedy which is very organic, is a very big part of this film. And I think it's, I think it's what makes them so relatable, is that they're so human and they're so real. And uh, anyway, I just love it. Another big element of the film is the music. And music is really big in your, in your, in your body of work. I mean, who puts troubadours in their films? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Putting music in the movie, that's my favorite part of making a movie. The hardest part is writing the script, for me. That's the hardest. And then directing it is the second hardest, because you're trying to make sure that... You, you, you know, hold true to every, you know, you keep that script and let it be what it wants to be. And, and it's a lot of work, a lot of thinking, a lot of preparation doing that. 
But at the end, once you've got those pieces together and you're in the editing room and you're putting a scene together and you slop a song over it or some score over it, that's when it, the movie just pops. It comes alive, and that's my favorite thing. And I constantly, I have an unbelievable music uh, supervisor named Tom Wolf and Manish Ravel. I've been with them, they've been with me since my, the, my first movie, Dumb and Dumber. And um, they, uh, they con year round, they're sending me music. They just send me little lists, and I listen to them all the time at home or in my car. And I just write down my favorites. So by the time I get to a movie, I have like, 30 or 40 songs to choose from. And I'm, they're always sending me guys under the radar so that we can afford them, like new guys. And uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a treat. But yeah, this one, um, uh, the score was done by a guy named Chris Bauer. And he also played most of the piano. Chris Bauer is a genius. And he, um, when we, we knew we needed a pianist, and basically I Googled best pianist in the United States, and Chris Bauer kept popping up, honestly. And um, so we, uh, we, we, uh, I went to him and I said, hey, listen, we're doing this movie and we need someone to play these parts. They're very complicated. And he said, so you want me to be like the hand doubler? So I said, well, yeah, kind of. He goes, no, I'm, like, I got, I'm busy. I got things to do. So I said, what if you're the composer too? He said, okay, I'll do it. And that's why I brought him in. And he was unbelievable. He's a real genius, this guy. And um, so he... He just ran with it, and we, you know, bounced stuff around. And I told him I didn't want the score to sound like Doctor Shirley, but I wanted it to be reminiscent of what drove him to that music and what inspired that music. So he he studied all sorts of you know stuff and came up with this great score. And as for the source music in the in the cars and you know playing over over the scenes. Uh, I wanted, for the most part, with a couple exceptions, I wanted to find the songs from the late 50s, early 60s that we're not hearing all the time. Like, I didn't want, you know, I got my thrill on Blueberry Hill. You know, those are, that's all the Happy Days stuff. I, I didn't want those. I wanted stuff you haven't heard but are great. And so I went to a lot of my old rocker buddies and said, come on, what inspired you that you're not hearing anymore? And they gave me lists of songs, and we, we laid those in, so... So let's talk about how you work with actors. I mean, here's Vigo, gains 50 pounds. Let's start with that. Uh, 50 pounds, 40 pounds? 45 pounds. 45 pounds. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so does he call you up and tell you months in advance, I'm gaining 45 pounds? Does, does it just understood that the guy was heavier and he's going to gain weight? What's the with conversation do you The have? first time I, um, he was, when he read the script, he loved it, but he didn't know if he could do it. He's like, I don't know if I could do this. He's what are you talking about? You did Eastern Promises. This is a walk in the park. Yeah. This would be nothing. And uh, he goes, yeah, but I don't know. Okay, send me pictures of the guy. I sent a picture. He goes, I don't know. That guy's so much bigger than me. I said, nobody, you're not playing Abe Lincoln. Nobody knows what he looks like. I said, it doesn't matter. He goes, no, nah, but I want to be the guy if I'm going to be him. And he finally committed to it. And then, yes, he showed up. He didn't tell me he was doing it, but he showed up up about 25 pounds. And it was definitely a different-looking Vigo. He went from 165 to 190. And he was lifting weights for about four months, you know, because he wanted to look like basically <clears throat> like a Sopranos guy, you know. Those guys aren't chiseled, but they're big and burly, and they look like they could do damage. And, um, and then during the shoot, he just did not stop eating. He gained another 20 pounds. And he, by the end, I'm telling you, I was worried for his life because he was smoking cigarettes nonstop, not just on, but, you know, he just got into it, like, and non-filters. And uh, I remember, like, walking at one point after a scene, walking back to the trailer with him, and he was wheezing. And I said, geez, dude, you got to really clean it up when this is over. I mean, he, he went all in for this thing. So how are you as a director with rehearsals, not rehearsals, uh, Vigo, 
rehearsal? How, how do you guys work? Though? I don't. I normally don't like rehearsals. I used to do them when I started. I thought you had to, so we did. And then I started noticing a trend where you know they they would rehearse perfectly, and then we'd be on the set and they'd be doing something different. I'm like, what are you doing? No, what, what are you, do what you did in the room. And they're like, I realized they got bored with it. You know, they don't want to keep doing the same thing. Like you know, like they, they were trained to do this. They want to find it on the day. And so I got away from rehearsals where I would do a read-through before every movie, but just to hear the clunkiness of certain you know, dialogue that we could fix before we get on the set. And then, um, uh, but this one was different because I really needed Mahershala's input on this and um, Octavia. Octavia Spencer was you know, the executive producer. And yeah, she's fantastic. By the way, like, you know, the image you have of her is this angelic thing. It, it's, it doesn't even begin to capture. This is one of the great people on the planet. I'm telling you, it's like an honor to know her. She's just a superb human being. And I've seen her on all things. Things get heavy, things get light. Whatever happens, she's the one we turn to. Octavia, what do we do here? You know, she is just a gem. But anyway, um, I needed to have their input because, um, you know, I knew going in, I'm a white guy. And I'm writing this thing about a white guy and a black guy. And I'm missing certain perspectives. And I wanted his, uh, Mahershala's. So there were things that he kept bringing to this uh, that were really important. But it, it was over the course of a week or two of rehearsing. Uh, and one of the things, I'll give you an example. I keep giving this one. But this is, this, there were a bunch of these um, where in the scene where they finally make peace after, uh, after uh, Tony Lip proves himself to be more dimensional a, a, a person, you know, after the YMCA scene, and um, they become friends, and they have a drink in the lobby of that hotel, their first drink together, and Don Shirley starts telling him, he goes, yeah, I was trained to be a classical musician, but the record company wouldn't let me, so that I had to do this, and blah, 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 and Don, and uh, Tony Lip says, well, yeah, anybody could train to do that. What are you, a seal? He goes, but what you do, nobody can do, and personally, I like what you do better, and as written, Don Shirley says, well, thank you, Tony. And that's the end of the scene. But when we're rehearsing it, Mahershala says, this is bullshit. He goes, like, I'm going to let this sixth-grade educated bouncer tell me, like, what I could or shouldn't do, and I'm just going to accept? Oh, good. I'm glad Tony Lip likes it. It's a good thing I'm doing this instead of what I wanted to do. He said, I would never accept that. And, and uh, instead, he says, well, thank you, Tony. But then he adds, uh, but uh, not everybody can play Chopin. Not like I can. And it's an important distinction, and he kept grabbing it. And that really was why I wanted to go through it. I really wanted to see where we were, what we were hitting right and what we were missing. When you say go through it, you mean in the read-through or go through it? Just me, Vigo, and Mahershala. Right. And then occasionally I'd, you know, I was calling uh, Octavia for her input, and I had her come in day, like, as soon as I could in the editing room just watching stuff. Right. Okay, great. Let's talk about uh, your DP, Sean. Who did an amazing job? I think it looks incredible. It's the yeah, Sean Porter, yeah, superstar. Um, Sean Porter. I knew I, I. This is a different movie for me, and I I wanted to try a different crew. I wanted a different look. I wanted different m most things different. Um, I I didn't want the same thing. So I just looked at a lot of movies, and I came across Sean Porter, and he'd done a couple movies that I just thought the looks were phenomenal, and. Um, uh, he did the movie, uh, what's it, something, The Treasure Hunter, about the Japanese woman who comes, goes to Minneapolis to look for the treasure from uh, Fargo. I don't know if you've seen it. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. And he did that, and I called him. He's a young guy. He's 35, but he looks like he's 18. And he lives in Oregon. And he's just a, and 
a stud. And he came in and, let, you know, he really helped me because, you know, I didn't know how to get that look 1962, but without going black and white, which I didn't want to go. I just don't. That seems too easy when you go black and white to capture a time period just because TVs were in black and white, you know. And I, but I wanted to capture kind of the colors and we, you know, he just kept showing me different things and, you know, we went with a kind of monochromatic look. And in, if you'll notice as the movie goes on, it becomes more and more silvery and less colorful. It starts, of course, in October with the leaves changing. But as they go further down south, the light kind of fades away as, and, and it was something that I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to do. And Sean Porter was, just the perfect guy. It just we only had seven weeks to shoot this thing. And we, you know, it's a period piece and we had like the the just the piano stuff alone took a lot of time. And so I needed a guy who knew what the hell he was doing and that was he was the right guy. So do you and Sean or do you on your own do you board? Do you uh, what is what is your what is your pre-shooting process? The only thing we boarded boarded in this, and again, that was another thing. When I did Dumb and Dumber, I boarded every scene in the movie. I took like two months to do it, and I realized, why am I doing this? I have like the two guys sitting at a coffee table, you know, across from each other. I'm boarding it. I got this, I got that, I got that. And like it's I know it's it's pretty simple. I like boarding when it's important, like an action scene or something that's gonna be a little complicated. For this one, though, we did the not complicated ones, which are the car scenes. They're very, very simple, but they're too simple. And we were afraid it would get old in that car. It could. There's only so many angles angles you could, you know, go for them uh, to get the people, unless you want to turn to Orson Welles, which I didn't. I didn't want to, like, suddenly be coming up from the floor, looking up at their chins or looking down from the, from the roof, you know. Yet, so what we did is we boarded out, like, every scene – uh, in that car, and we decided which how we were going to shoot it. And so, like, the first scene, if we did it from certain angles, we would hold those angles off until, like, the eighth scene, you know, so that you forget about those. And we didn't want to have, like, three scenes in a row with the same angles, which would have been easy to do if we didn't plan it properly. And, uh, again, like, there weren't that many angles. So we had to... Uh, uh, we, we, we really mapped that out to make sure it didn't get boring in that car. Car work is tough. I particularly like the angle uh, looking through the windshield off the front right bumper where you were rack focusing back and forth from Vigo to, yeah. to him in the back seat. Yeah. It was a really nice effect. So the car work, uh, pulling, towing, the green screen, what were you doing with like all no, combination of it? combination. It was mostly uh, pulling, tow towing it on a yeah. you know, camera car. Uh, but we did have some cranes and, you know, arms. Uh, we, we'd pull up next to them and, you know, we kind of mixed it up. And we had a little green screen. Uh, we did a little of the snowstorm green screen. But the actual snowstorm, that was just one of those crazy blessings. It, had, it snows apparently where we were in Louisiana. About every three years you get some snow. But about every 25 years it sticks. The day we're supposed to be shooting it, or the day before, we're already painting down the trees with you know, the white stuff. And all of a sudden it starts to snow, and we got like four inches of snow, and we just went right into it and shot it. So we were blessed with that. It was an unbelievable thing. First time, the crew was like, we got to go home, there's snow. And like, no, this is, we, we could wait a quarter century. They're like, but how do we drive? I'm like, I'll drive you home, don't worry. You know? People were terrified. But, um, uh, but we got lucky, and, uh, and so most of the snow is real snow, and with a couple of green screen things. Great. So what, I'm curious, uh, director, what camera were you using? Do you know the camera? Was it uh, Alexa? Alexa. It was the Alexa. Yes. 
and and you had done film before. Most of your films before were shot on film. Was this the first time you'd done digital? Had you done digital? Before? I had done digital uh, before, uh, but you know, I, mostly it was shot on film until like my last couple movies were digital. And I realized I fought at first to do film, and then I realized it's I couldn't tell the difference. I actually wanted film on this one because of the period, and for some reason I thought it had to be film. And they took me in. And they showed me film and digital, and they said, Pete, which is which? I was like, okay, we'll just do digital. <laughs> Couldn't tell. The studio the sets that up. Yeah. The studio, when they don't want to pay, yeah. they go in and say, yeah. can you tell the difference? Yeah. And then when you can't. I honestly, I, I mean, if you pointed it out, I'd be, oh, yeah, okay, I could see it. But it was so hard to tell, and it was so much easier. And we only had seven weeks. You know, film's slower, and you got to change reels and, and a lot, lot of other reasons to use digital. And it, and it just looked great. So you shot it when? How far, like how far back were you? We you just do finished it? in February. You know, um, we started it last uh, December, and uh, and then we broke for Christmas, and then we came back and we did January and some into February. Um, and uh, but it it, it uh, I also had an unbelievable uh, uh, editor, a guy named Patrick Don Vito, who's a, a, a I had good people around me in this movie, and this guy. He put this thing together so well, so fast. Everybody, I, I'm, I always ask directors this. When, usually when I see the first assembly of a movie, I want to throw up. I, I remember I saw something about Mary. I thought, oh, my God, Jesus. It's, it's, and then you get in there, and, and then you, 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 know, you move it around, and you, get, you find what you want to do. But usually I'm pained by what I first see. Not this one. I went in, and all of a sudden, it, it just looked so good. I remember telling people, I said, this thing's cutting itself. <laughs> It's the worst thing you could say in front of the editor. <laughs> and I looked over him. I said, no, it's not. I'm sorry. He's cutting it. Patrick Don Vito. But it came together so easily, it felt like, you know, it wasn't hard. But it's just, that's how good this guy was. And we were done a month early for our, you know, cut. And I called the studio. I said, hey, can we do a screening? They said, you have another month. I said, yeah, but I'm, we're done. I don't want to mess with it. So we went out. We did our test screenings like six weeks later. Right. Wow, it's quick. It's fantastic. So, I mean, it all makes sense now, but, but you know, a year ago, uh, or a little bit more, you're directing at your brother, you're switching up your entire crew, yeah. you're now doing a dramatic thing. I must, I mean, it's all, must have been very much up in the air and kind of like, where is this all going? It must have been, a, I mean, it's a part of the story, really. You know, it, 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 was, it, was, a, it was a hard one. I had Vigo and Mahershala, and I couldn't get people to make this movie. And they had just both been nominated for Oscars. And people were like, yeah, but, you know, what have you done like this before? I said, what are you talking about? I said, this is the script I'm doing. Yeah, but what's the tone? I said, the, the tone's in the script. Read the script. That's the tone. And I had a hard time you know, getting people to, uh, you know, studios to say, all right, let's give the guy a crack at it. Because, you know, I don't know why they were afraid of me. They thought I might go in a certain direct, get goofy. I have no idea. But... Um, uh, yes, it wasn't easy, uh, and thank God Participant came on, and they were the first guys, you know, on board and said, yeah, okay, we'll make this thing. And, uh, but, but, you know, anytime you're making a movie, it's, uh, it's you know, you're, you're, it's, a, it's such an endeavor. It's so, you know, 100% of your life has to be there. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it was overwhelming, and the week before we started shooting, my sister died suddenly, yeah, she uh, just heart attack, and um, perfectly healthy, you know, just gone. And it, you know, there was a part of me at that point thought like, how am I going to go on and do this movie, and uh, without like mourning her? But 
uh, I went on and I had to just go forward and do the thing. And I remember when we finally screened it, I'm not a crier. I have a hard time crying. I, I, I think like when I was somebody, like when I was like 12, somebody said, don't cry. And I never cried again. I really have a hard time with it. And when I was at the uh, Toronto Film Festival and we did our first screening there and the, it blew the doors off the place and the people erupted at the end, I could not stop crying. It's just like everything came out. It was like my sister, the movie, everything about it just let go there. And it was a, uh, it was a really, I remember the next day I was walking around and I was saying, God, I feel so good. Why do I feel so good today? I realized, oh, I cried yesterday for the first time in 40 years. You know, that helps. Um, but um, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it wasn't easy, but it was. Uh, it was a. You know, it was something. It was an ex unbelievable experience. Well, I, I, I'm going to wrap this up here. I think what what you've just said is an experience we've all had with the film. I think there's a cathartic emotional release from watching this film. You have a very particular voice. <clears throat> it's it's it's, it's you know, extraordinarily competent storyteller. Wonderful director. Uh, a tremendous gift to balance, you know, all the different uh, comedy and drama. But I really do feel this is the film that we needed to have. And I think the reaction that you got at Toronto and you got here today, I think you're gonna, I think it's gonna be repeated. I think you've done something really exceptional, and I think you've made it look easy. I think it's very, very difficult to do something like this. Very, to get into a mass psyche the way this does, and you do it time and again, I think you have a gift for it. It's very, very difficult to do what you do, and I just wish you the absolute best with this film because I think it's a wonderful film, and I think everybody should really try and get it and see thank it. Thank you, can I, before, thank you very much. I, I wanna say before I go, a couple things. Uh, first of all, I wanna thank Dan Gilroy for doing this. This is an honor to be in the room with him. Uh, uh, Nightcrawler, by the way, is one of my favorite movies of the last decade. Honestly, top three. That I've seen. People that were movie. crying at the end of it. They were so yeah. uplifted. I watched that movie. I'm telling you, I watched that movie over and over. But I also want to thank all of you for being here because you know, normally in my movies, you have a movie, you have a premiere, uh, it's over. You know, that's it. You go on. You never have this experience again. Certainly, no Q and As. You know, I think the closest we had, we were at like a Knights of Columbus in Rhode Island, where I'm from. <laughs> And my buddy, this is a true story, my buddy raised his hand, it was on Dumb and Dumber, and he goes, Peter, he goes, hey, do you think dumb people are gonna be offended by this? <laughs> like, I don't know, I don't think people identify as, as, as dumb. Uh, you know, that's not their identity. He goes, what about Tommy? I was like, okay, whatever. Um, but um, to be here and to get the, you know, talk to you guys, it, it just means the world to me. I'm very grateful for it all, thank you. Great job, bud. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Dan Gilroy, check out episode 117, where Mr. Gilroy discusses his film Roman J. Israel Esquire with director Jeremy Kagan. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We have some great Q&As coming up from directors Feta Alvarez, Susie Unessi, and Karen Kusama, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.